Welcome to Farm to Fork, a program dedicated to exploring how food and drink are produced, delivered, and served throughout the Pioneer Valley. In every episode, we speak with some of the brightest lights in the valley's culinary world, from gleaners, gatherers, hunters, fishermen, farmers, packagers, uh, and brewers and restaurateurs, and everyone in between. My name is Jessica. Show producer Caroline Rudderman joins me in the studio. Uh, as well as Sue Timberlake. And today we'll be talking with Gregory Mori, owner of Forestopia International in Brattleboro, Vermont. So I'm glad that you were able to join us, Gregory. Hello. So when Hi, and thank you for having me. Oh, yeah. Good to have you here. Uh, so when and how did you get involved with agroforestry? Oh, well, uh, it's probably been uh, about uh, 10 or 12 years now. Uh, since I've uh, been focusing almost exclusively on agroforestry, I've been in, involved with and interested in sustainable agriculture uh, uh, back since the 80s when I studied sustainable agriculture at UC Davis um, and worked at farms and farm institutes along the way and some international work around uh, food security and, and environmental health. But uh, came back to this continent about uh, the mid-aughts and kind of just steered back towards sustainable agriculture and since about 2010 i've been focused on agroforestry and uh, uh about half the time here and half the in the northeast and half the time in in mexico mm -hmm. oh cool um so why did you choose uh is it brattleboro the site of the farm brattleboro, well, vermont? the business forestopia the business itself is incorporated in vermont as mm -hmm. what's called an l3c and that's a, a special designation that vermont and, and i think oregon have and that's for for businesses that really have a social focus or a social mission, and uh, it's called a low-profit limited liability. It is an LLC, but it's a special designation that they have in Vermont. And mm -hmm. So we are, you know, incorporated in Vermont, and, and the and the organization Forestopia is based in Vermont. I, I reside in Western Massachusetts. I have land here in West Massachusetts and do a lot of my gathering and farming uh, on, on my land and, and gathering around forests and uh, harvesting in forests here in Western Mass and Southern Vermont. Mm -hmm. uh, but we are, the, again, Forestopia is uh, uh, incorporated and based in Vermont. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. Uh, so what are the benefits of growing edibles uh, in a forest? Well, just, just finishing up, you know, so uh, getting back to, uh, uh, I, uh, you know, started Forestopia back in, in 2010. Mm -hmm. uh, and with a real, and how it came to be uh, was really after, looking at different approaches to production and, 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 and livelihoods and forest conservation in, in southern Mexico and in Guatemala, kind of came to the focus on this idea of developing new value chains from the forests, uh, products other than timber from the forest that could be harvested in sustainable ways, uh, low impact or ecologically sound ways, that had a kind of a double benefit in the reinforcing conservation of the forests uh, as well as um, building sustainable livelihoods and, and incomes for, for communities, folks living in or around forested or, or, or protected areas. And in, in that way, really reducing the pressure on, on forests and, 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 and impact and, 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 and lessening the uh, pressures for deforestation. Mm 
so that was the real it spark. I, I saw some work with some folks in Guatemala and some projects around developing a value chain of, of some f forest harvested nuts and seeds, something called Ramon, the Brosoma Madagascarum tree, and then other value chains around chicle for gum. And I thought this this is this is something, and that's how I really started to build Forestopia. Uh, and, and work with products from uh, that region of the world. I also spent most of my adult career in, in working for the UN, USAID, and, and countries around the world. So I started visiting producer groups, projects in other countries, Indonesia, uh, and Nepal, and, and developing relationships with producer groups, uh, cooperatives, harvester uh, associations in those locations, and starting to try to uh, look for markets for some of these products, whether it's soap nuts from Nepal, um, <clears throat> various fruits uh, or, 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 or native fruits from South America or uh, spices in Indonesia, uh, the Ramon, as I mentioned, and Chicle from Mexico. But along the way, as I really uh, began to develop an interest in the agroforestry, that integration of trees and crops uh, in, in managed systems and, and looking at what crops were being grown well in agroforestry systems. And that naturally brought me to coffee and teas and spices and and. and so that became part of the uh, Forestopia portfolio of products importing uh, coffee, cocoa, spices from growers groups. So we would go through a really pretty uh, arduous, not arduous, but specific process of sort of vetting who we were going to work with. They had to really meet the criteria of uh, commitment to the agroecology, commitment to agroforestry, and, and uh, as well as being a well-managed uh, cooperative association committed to social justice, fairness, and treatment of, of their members. And so, you know, they met those criteria of, of you know, quality product, well-managed, uh, committed to agroforestry and, uh, you know, committed to a uh, fair treatment of growers, then it would be a product we considered. So uh, in reality, after, you know, 12 years, we have only worked with one coffee grower that we feel meets the criteria that we're looking for. And that's the Maya Vinique growers in, in Chiapas. It's an excellent coffee. They're committed to an agroecology and, and, and a well-managed agroforestry system. They're an indigenous cooperative that's well-managed, well-run. And so, um, and it's a great coffee. So we, uh, that's, that's what we work with. Uh, mm -hmm. Similar in our cocoa, we have to have one cocoa growers group in the Soconusco region of, of Chiapas. And so that's an example. Uh, so we're not looking to be the coffee company that uh, that for for all people and, and all and, and dozens of different coffees no we just have one coffee that we feel uh meets that criteria mm -hmm. so that's that's a bit about the origin i i should yeah, say that i had a bit of a hiatus uh from 2014 to 2020 i kind of left forestopia in limbo and and worked uh for the center for agroforestry at the university of missouri as their education outreach coordinator for for from 2014 to 2020 uh uh, you know, along the way, when I started uh, Forestopia, uh, spent a lot of my time not so much as a business person trying to build a business, but really just going around and, and learning more about the, the, the science, uh, the programs, and who was doing what in agroforestry and, and educating myself about it. So, uh, and, you know, attending every agroforestry event around the world and getting to know folks involved. So, uh, um, I should probably leave the business end to someone else. <laughs> but anyway, get, getting back to your questions, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you'd rather be uh, the in person dealing with the other, yeah, talking to people out out and about. Yeah, um, I, you why you know, pull the string and wind me up, and I mm -hmm. I can talk all day about agroforestry. <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> 
so you, you've already mentioned some of the benefits of uh, growing edibles in a forest. So how does agroforestry, though I'm curious, compare to big agriculture in terms of soil, amount of time it takes, diversity of plants, wild animal impact, et cetera? Well, you, you, you're touching on a lot of the uh, uh, benefits or potential benefits of a tree-based agriculture or agroforestry systems. Now, mm-hmm. it, agroforestry can encompass quite a range of different practices. And I've started off by mentioning this idea of wild harvesting and developing value chains from the forest. Uh, there are, uh, you know, that, that we, whether we call that agroforestry or, or wild crafting or, or, or forest utilization, but, in, you know, I look at it as a, as a kind of agroforestry, this kind of managed uh, approach to the forest and, 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 and product harvesting, because there, there can be quite a bit of management when you're dealing with some of these, uh, even with these wild harvested products. But when we get into what we're talking about with agroforestry, at its core, uh, what we mean by agroforestry is the intentional combination or intentional integration of trees and or shrubs any kind of perennial tree or shrub with crops so mm-hmm. trees crops and or livestock too we have a, what we call civil pasture it's an agroforestry practice where we're integrating trees and livestock in ways that there's a number of benefits that, that accrue from that combination but uh, any of these agroforestry systems where it's mixing perhaps uh tree crops with with row crops and what we call an agro uh, an alley cropping system, or we're using trees uh, on the agricultural landscape uh, for certain purposes or, or, or certain benefits, whether it's windrows or riparian buffers or windbreaks to to help uh, provide some benefit or function. Now we can create those hedgerows, windrows in ways that we're also uh, able to harvest some kind of product or have some other utility from them. So these different kind of practices were combining trees and livestock and integrating trees on the agricultural landscapes, we can call agroforestry. Mm-hmm. Um, you you had some other questions here. I saw I may have missed to go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just in general talking about the, the, oh, the how, benefits. how so, so it some, compares to agroforestry. Right, you talked about habitat like ag- and soil and, and wildlife. Mm-hmm. Well, these are many of the ecological benefits that can come from from. Uh, having trees in our agricultural landscape, in, in addition to the kind of products we may derive from the trees, fruits, nuts, oils, uh, wood products, etc. There's a lot of ecological benefits. Um, and f- foremost is, is, is contributing to soil, helping uh, regulate, uh, improve you know, increase the fo- soil quality, soil fertility, uh, uh, managing water on the landscape. Uh, some of our trees can help us uh, in some of the areas where there's, uh, uh, you know, runoff and reducing erosion. And, and mm-hmm. so it, there's definitely a benefits to soil and, and soil management with, with, with trees. Uh, you contribute to uh, uh, having a diversity of, of, of wildlife that contribute to habitat to birds and, and other wildlife mm-hmm. can support a lot of insect life, which thereby then, uh, yeah, it helps in the in the food web, but the food chain. Uh, uh, but you know, there's there's also some some challenges with, with trees when you're integrating a crop in terms of the management, competition for resources, water, sunlight, uh, mm-hmm. uh, in in impact of the roots. Uh, you know, there might be subsoil competition for for water and nutrients. 
the tree roots can can affect how your your crop is growing. They're shading uh, in competition for light above ground. So when we're talking about an agroforestry system and, and intentionally integrating trees into uh, a cropping system, there uh, it requires a, a active management to keep uh, it, it functioning in, in, in the way intended. Um, the, some of these trees might require a, a pruning or, or a harvest every so often. Um, so those are some examples of how trees and crops might be combined and what some of the benefits. Uh, <clears throat> there are both economic and ecological benefits that can can come from from having trees uh i i, I didn't even mention the carbon uh, dimension in terms of uh sequestering carbon in soil and in in the woody biomass so mm -hmm. there's another dimension uh in terms of climate uh resilience and climate uh mitigation with with having more trees uh, on the agricultural landscape mm -hmm. so gregory i'm trying to picture uh windbreak are you able to use edible plants for that or Oh, absolutely. If, yeah. uh, and have the highly desirable approach, if you can uh, find the right species that will give you the windbreak uh, function, because uh, when you're really designing a windbreak for that purpose, uh, you want to choose the, the tree species and the spacing that are going to really give you uh, that benefit. And there's, there's a, a, a bit of uh, technical considerations in the design of a windbreak to make sure you're, you're, you're getting uh, uh, how, how, especially in, in in very windy situations, say in the Great Plains and Midwest, where you're having row crops, corn or, or soybean or other other crops, that can have a significant impact from from excessive winds, where you have quite windy conditions, whether Kansas, Nebraska, or, or Iowa. Mm -hmm. um, so, a windbreak. In that consideration, you might choose a a, a dense conifer species to really get the the maximum. Uh, wind reduction you have to think of your spacing and there's sort of formulas that you would look at for the, the how the height of the trees the density of the trees and uh, height a tree of say x meters 10 20 meters what is the uh benefit and how many meters into the field is it going to give a, a benefit and i believe there's a uh, it's either a one to eight or one to ten ratio of the height of the tree to the, the measured benefit into to the field of the crop i have to go back and look at notes but Mm -hmm. But anyone considering uh, a windbreak would, would 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 seek some technical guides or some guidance on on, on those considerations. Now, if you could integrate harvestable materials uh, or species into that windbreak, mm -hmm. either in the main tree or in some uh, sub tree, like having a, a primary windbreak tree that provides a density and the height, and then a secondary shrub that might provide some wildlife benefits or some harvestable uh, fruits or, or nuts. Um, you know, any of these systems are going to require maintenance. There's going to be a life uh, span or cycle of those trees that so you may require occasional again pruning or harvesting and, and replacement. Mm -hmm. But uh, optimally, if you can design a windbreak that has uh, some product that comes out of it to to optimize uh, uh, the economic return. But generally, most windbreaks are, are in the right. Uh, correctly installed and uh, are, are going to give uh, more than uh, their uh, return in economically in terms of crop protection mm -hmm. and, and yield increases um, over what uh, you know crop loss based on the edge where there's excess shading or the uh, cost of installing that windbreak. Uh, there's pretty compelling evidence of, of the economic return mm -hmm. uh, from from installing a windbreak based on on the yield uh, mm -hmm. bump. 
You're listening to Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP 103.3 FM in Northampton. And we're talking with Gregory Mori, owner of Forestopia International in Brattleboro, uh, Vermont. Uh, so Gregory, I was curious, uh, what is the quickest and easiest way for someone who's interested in agroforestry to learn about it? Well, um, that's a good question. Let's see. Resources I could uh, maybe uh, come to mind are, well, you would, might check with the National Agroforestry Center. That's a USDA National Agroforestry Center. That's under the uh, the Forest Service. And there is a website. Uh, I believe it's NAC, USDA. I'll, I'll get it in just a minute. But there's a, a wealth of resources on their website. Mm-hmm. Uh, guides, technical guides, educational materials, videos, links to all the webinars around um, agroforestry. So that's a great place to start. The Center for uh, Agroforestry, my alma mater at the University of Missouri and uh, my former place where I was formerly employed at the Center for Agroforestry, University of Missouri, is also an excellent resource. Check out their website, centerforagroforestry.org. Again, lots of technical guides. There is fact sheets, technical guides, um, more comprehensive guides on specific crops like chestnut, black walnut, elderberry, uh, and others Uh, there are enterprise budgets that you can look at there are decision financial support decision making tools where you can really get into the the nitty-gritty on sort of projecting out 20 years what things are going to look like if you're going to be planting elderberry or chestnut and intercropping or and then really looking at all the variables you're spacing fertilizing not fertilizing irrigating organic, non-organic, so that you can have a financial projection of, of what you, you might expect. Uh, again, there's no guarantees in, in, in agriculture that things are going to turn out uh, according to the models, but they really help you make some decisions and some modeling. Those are some of the examples of the resources they have at the Center for Agroforestry. Again, there's also webinars, podcasts, there's the annual symposium and conferences. They also have a master's degree in agroforestry and online courses and a certificate. So someone who may be a technical service provider, NRCS, or an extension worker, or someone else interested or involved in agriculture might consider taking some of their online courses um, initially for the grad certificate level or or uh, it, the, the master's degree. It's probably the most affordable master's degree that, that one can consider. It's 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 it uh, has a 100% online master's degree in, in agriculture. There's also uh, other master's degrees available in person, a master's of science degree. But those are two great places to start, National Agroforestry Center, Center for Agroforestry. Um, other organizations like NOFA and CISA here locally are starting to have more interest and attention to agroforestry. And you might find them having uh, some some experience or expertise or some some fact sheets. I know NOFA is going to be working on promoting agroforestry and, uh, over the next few years. So uh, uh, Cornell University in New York closer to home has an excellent agroforestry core group of faculty and practitioners and they have lots of resources and webinars so look for agroforestry resources through cornell cooperative extension uh folks like me uh i guess around uh, john o- john o'niger others uh, uh there's, there's folks around who have interest and experience in agroforestry that uh, one could link with um mm-hmm. increasingly there's a recognition and interest in agroforestry there's some farmers here locally who are trying uh, out and implementing civil pasture systems. Um, you know, uh, John O. Niger of Big River Chestnuts and Regenerative Design Group is 
along with uh, Steve Gabriel at Cornell. They're doing a, a survey of civil pasture around the Northeast. Other resources at Yale University, there's a couple of faculty members that are very much focused on agroforestry and, and Joe Orifice uh, at Yale uh, and, and runs their uh, some of their programs is an excellent resource as well. Um, mm -hmm. So, so how, I, how would you uh, define civil pasture? Gregory. Oh, civil pasture, uh, again, of one of the core agroforestry practice. Uh, how would we define it? It is the intentional combination of trees and, and livestock. Uh, mm -hmm. There may be a crop dimension, but uh, generally it's, it's Some livestock. trees and, and, and livestock together. I mean, mm -hmm. conventionally, historically, we, we think of, of livestock in, in open pasture and, and I, uh, or, or, or grain fed or, or in, in open pasture. Where in, in civil pasture, you're intentionally including trees and shrubs in the system. And that could be through adding trees and shrubs to an existing pasture or uh, in a wooded area, doing some level of thinning to a level where it can support uh, forage resources and, 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 and still have a tree component and be able to rotate uh, or graze animals in 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 that setting what we often see in missouri or here locally where it's quite a forested landscape in southern missouri and there's quite a bit of cattle industry we'd be looking at say augmenting our, our pastures by by putting some edge civil pastures we might choose a, an extra half acre or acre and then thin uh the the native trees in there down to a a lower density what we call the basal area uh, to one that's uh, providing the shade, which is beneficial to the livestock in terms of uh, reducing heat stress and and, uh, and also in the wintertime, provides a significant benefit in reducing the wind chill uh, by, by cutting down the wind and providing some cover. But uh, that uh, can have a productivity benefit, the, the reduction in heat stress and, and the reduction in wind chill in, in the winter. Uh, and in some cases, it provides for excellent forage resources where we have cool season grasses that might actually do well in, in the shaded environment. So uh, like any of the agroforestry system, it needs to be a managed system. You need to really uh, plan, uh, design it and plan for, for optimization, and then uh, it requires active management. There's, there's no, it's not a set it and forget it kind of thing. It requires active management. Mm -hmm. But at its core, trees and livestock together, pasture, whether it's, um, again, putting trees into pasture or removing trees, uh, thinning trees in a, in a, in a native wood stand. Mm -hmm. What is generally uh, uh, recognized as not a great idea is simply just turning cattle into the woods and uh, in, in an unmanaged way. That's, that's not great for the trees, not great for the cattle, and not going to give the best results. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Gregory, um, what food items uh, do you grow and why did you choose those? For your well, I do product. grow things. I, I do a lot of harvesting around the region. I do a lot of importing from grower partners around the world, and I do grow things. I grow shiitake, law-grown shiitake mushrooms. I have a piece of land in Shutesbury. We call it the forest farm. Uh, I grow shiitake mushrooms and, and other forest-grown mushrooms. I have chickens and, and goats and sheep and all that fun stuff, and I grow vegetables. But in terms of agroforestry cropping, it's really the forest farming that, that I, I focus on. And perhaps distinct from what I was discussing this wild harvesting or wild crafting of non-timber forest products, there's an agroforestry practice we refer to as forest farming, where we're intentionally cultivating and managing uh, 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 under native tree cover. For example, the shiitake mushrooms we're growing on logs, uh, so oak logs that we, we harvest, and we, but we do that under uh, shade cover of, of native trees. Um, 
uh, other things that might be grown in a forest farming practice are high value uh, native botanicals like ginseng, golden seal, black cohosh that that do best in in, in native soils and, and under uh, a certain amount of shade cover. There's a shade or uh, requiring some amount of shade. Uh, I don't do so much of the of the forest farming of, of the botanicals. <clears throat> I do uh, work with uh, other native species like mountain ash, sumac, <clears throat> witch hazel. I, I harvest spruce tips and, and balsam fir and grow those on, on my land. I harvest the balsam fir. We do a coppicing Christmas tree. We also make balsam wreaths. We uh, extract balsam for oil. But uh, for, for harvested things, that uh, uh, I, sumac, spruce tips are, are, are some of my biggest ones. But in terms of the forest farming, for me, it, it, I'm mostly doing mushrooms. And that's, and that's mm -hmm. probably my biggest revenue generator mm -hmm. uh, that is, is, is from, from the forest farm mushrooms. I still work on developing markets for some of the other products. Uh, we work with chestnut flour and chestnuts in the fall. Uh, we harvest and, and aggregate chestnuts from trees all around uh, the, the valley. And in partnership with Jono Niger at Big River Chestnuts in Sunderland, we have a Sunday market every Sunday where we're roasting chestnuts and selling local uh, fresh chestnuts and, and, and chestnut flour. I also make an acorn drinks. I make an acorn coffee and an acorn chai from, from uh, locally uh, harvested and roasted acorns. Uh, so that's and some other fun things like that. We make a spruce tip soda. We make a blueberry a baobab lemonade. The blueberry is a local. The baobab is from South Africa. <laughs> but um, my main crop is the shiitake mushrooms on, on our forest farm in Shootsbury. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> this is Sue. What, uh, what do you do with the sumac? Sumac makes a lovely tea and lemonade. It's, it's high in, in vitamin C. It's got a nice tangy flavor to it. Um, that's the, the, the main use for it. It can be used as a spice around the Mideast, uh, Turkey, and the Levant, and in <clears throat> Lebanon and surrounding areas. It's a, a different species of roos. It's from uh, roos, like the botanical name. I always mispronounce it. But uh, sumac is, it's in fact, it's even called sumac in, in Turkey, and it's used as a spice. Slightly different species than, than our native staghorn sumac, but... You could use the our native staghorn sumac as, as as a spice. It's got a nice tangy flavor to it, but we, we make a lemonade and, and, a, and a tea from it. And that's from the berries? Yeah, the berries is really the fur, the, the kind of fuzz on the Oh, berries. the fuzz, the red fuzz? The fuzz, the red fuzz, yeah. <laughs> I heard uh, that, um, uh, uh, oh, what are they, cardinals like those. Yeah, so like birds the birds do, do, do uh, enjoy it. Uh, some of the things like the mountain ash, if I'm not right on the timing, uh, you know, it's it's sitting on the tree. It's on the tree, and then come the first frosts, uh, and you know they, they can be gone in a matter of days. If uh, once the, it really seems like right after the frost is when they're most uh, attractive to the birds. And so last year I was watching, watching, and I may have delayed, and I got back to harvest. Like oh, gone. <laughs> a heck of a lot, awful lot less mountain ash than there were two days ago. <laughs> mountain ash is it, it, it's a. Uh, you know, most people ignore it, but it, it can make a nice preserve and a, and a nice drink. Uh, in Europe, it's called the Rowan uh, tree. Mm -hmm. uh, here we call it mountain ash. So, Gregory, uh, is it fairly easy to grow one's own mushrooms? I mean, would you encourage, you know, individuals who are listening to start growing their own mushrooms on a log? Or is it kind of more complicated well, than... relatively easy once you learn how. I think mm -hmm. like many things that are unfamiliar, it can be daunting or intimidating at first. I remember even, you know, before I ever started growing mushrooms about 12 years ago, 
I was kind of has this. It was it was odd because that was sort of this mysterious sort of esoteric thing, like you needed to be a Zen master or something to figure out how to do it. But, you know, once I learned how, I was like, okay, it's pretty straightforward. And you know, obviously, it's work and and it requires management. But you know, uh, shiitake is relatively manageable. It's particularly, especially the commercial strains of shiitake where you uh, inoculate and then you the you can do what's called force fruiting. You you choose strains that are responsive to this force fruiting, where we soak the logs for about twelve to twenty four hours, uh, and then that really f- uh, forces it stimulates them to produce mushrooms. Seven to ten days later, you have a harvest, which is great because then you can put things on a cycle. You can do mm-hmm. a commercial operation with grow grown shiitakes because you can plan and predict your production. Unlike mm-hmm. if you're trying to do oyster mushrooms outside on logs and totems, it's it's it, you can't really control it and it's not predictable so it's not really viable as a commercial approach if you're going to mm-hmm. do oyster mushrooms commercially you really need to be moving inside and doing it on sawdust where you have controlled humidity and temperature conditions mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then you can put it on on a production cycle i see well uh gregory we need to take a station break um so audience please stay with us because when we return we'll continue our discussion with gregory mori owner of forestopia international in brattleboro vermont you're listening to Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio, 103.3 FM, an independent, nonprofit, community-run station in Northampton, Massachusetts. The show streams on valleyfreeradio.org, where you can also find our program schedule and become involved with the station. Ranger Station, Ranger speaking. Hi, I'd like to report a bear sighting, as in Smokey Bear. Continue. I was burning yard waste. He told me to remember that if it's too hot to touch, it's too hot to leave. You know, 9 out of 10 wildfires are caused by humans. That means 9 out of 10 wildfires can be prevented. I know that now. As usual, the talking bear gets all the credit. Always burn responsibly and contact your local fire department for open burning regulations. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ag Council. Learn more at SmokeyBear.com. Only you can prevent wildfires. It's time to ask Mr. Green from the Sierra Club. Steve in Lakewood, Colorado wants to know, what's the proper way to dispose of used household batteries? Well, Steve, alkaline batteries, the most widely used type, contains zinc, which can harm certain aquatic species. But federal regulators, unlike some states, do not consider them dangerous enough to require special treatment. Check out earth911.org to see if anyone collects alkaline batteries in your area. If not, look up Battery Solutions or the Big Green Box who will recycle them for a fee. Rechargeable batteries, like those found in billions of cell phones, should definitely be recycled because they contain dangerous heavy metals like cadmium and lithium. However, thousands of stores nationwide take them back. Visit calltorecycle.org to find one near you. Finally, honor the mantra, reduce, reuse, and recycle. Fewer gadgets is a sure cure for disposal angst. Ask Mr. Green and learn a lot more online at sierraclubradio.org. It's time to ask Mr. Green from the Sierra Club. Melinda in Lakeland, Florida asks, Hey, Mr. Green, I know that bottled water is bad and I rarely buy it. However, I enjoy seltzer water. Is there a way to make my own at home and save on bottles? You're right about bottled water. It's been so thoroughly and convincingly ripped for so many reasons by so many critics. Worldwide sales of bottled water exceeded $50 billion a year. That's $50 billion if invested in water systems which could provide safe drinking water for the billion of our thirsty fellow humans who don't have it and save the lives of 2.2 million who die from waterborne diseases every year. But if you got to have your fizz fix, 
Soda makers, which use refillable carbon dioxide cylinders, and soda siphons, which have single-use cartridges, are easy to use and cost about $50 to $300. It's a simple appliance for your kitchen that can put fizz into water from the tap. You'll get delicious carbonated water and won't have to worry about disposable plastic bottles. Ask Mr. Green and learn a lot more online at sierraclubradio.org. Hi, I'm Mark Sherry. And I'm Ace Housethor, and we're some of the hosts for the New Music Alliance Radio Hour, which goes up every Thursday from 6 to 7 p.m. We're going to focus on presenting some of the best original music to come from the Western New England area, both past and present. And as always, keep keep on rockin'. Thank you, River Valley Co-op, for your support of Valley Free Radio. River Valley Co-op specializes in fresh, local, and organically grown foods, fresh produce, meat and seafood, cheese and dairy, bread and baked goods, and an in-house deli, along with a wide selection of bulk foods and a large selection of natural and organic grocery items. Owned by its customers, although everyone is welcome. Co-op ownership is not required. Open daily 8 to 10, 330 North King Street, Northampton. Phone 413-584-2665, rivervalleymarket.com. Co-op. Thank you, River Valley Co-op, for your support of free speech in the Pioneer Valley. My name is Jessica, show producer Caroline Ruderman, and my co-host Sue Timberlake join me in the studio. We've been talking with Gregory Mori, owner of Forestopia International in Brattleboro, Vermont. So Gregory, I was curious, uh, is there a minimum in terms of size of a property that one needs to start an agroforestry, agroforest, uh, sorry, agroforest at his or her home? Well, uh, that's a great question, and um, like many things, I you know I think it depends, uh, and um, what we're talking about. Um, so, if we were, uh, uh, depending on the crop, uh, so some practices really uh, really require a very small amount of land. If we're talking about a forest farm, it's really much more intensive and, and small uh, area. If we're a high value crop like ginseng uh, or or other botanicals grown under forest cover is really a, a more intensive and small land-based operation. I mean, some less than an acre or maybe a couple acres mm-hmm. uh, would be a big, uh, I think, ginseng operation if it were a couple acres. Um, likewise, the shiitake mushrooms, you know, I don't, I don't occupy that much space under I use a, a pine and hemlock grove I have. And that's, that's my shade, year-round shade, which is optimal because, you know, the winter sun could be drying out my logs. Uh, that's why I choose the, the conifer uh, in the hemlock uh, areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and some crops that we might intercrop in, in a field, uh, like elderberry, you could, can make considerable returns per acre on an intensive elderberry operation if you use either uh, intercropped or, or not. Um, chestnuts, likewise, uh, most operations know are just a, a handful of acres or, or uh, and I know a very successful grower in Missouri, he's only on 20 acres and he's got intercrop, started off intercropping his chestnuts with uh, <clears throat> corn, uh, what squash and corn, and then he switched to winter wheat and that really works well uh, because, you know, uh, he cuts down the stubble of the winter wheat and, and manages that and, and provides a nice carpet for then harvesting uh, the chestnuts later on in the fall and their, their schedules and cycles are compatible so they're not uh, uh, interfering with each other. So it's a, it's a good combination. He's, he's making a very good 
profit and, and living on 20 acres of chestnuts and elderberries. So, mm -hmm. and that's inner crops again with, with the other crops. Mm -hmm. We started off uh, again with corn and, and, and squash when they were still getting established. And now that they're established, you work for winter wheat. So mm -hmm. a, an example closer to home, Big River Chestnuts in Sunderland is, well, I think it's about seven acres of, of, of chestnuts uh, intercropped with, with, with other uh, things. And he has other uh, tree species. He's got some aronia and hazel and, and, and elderberry. Uh, so uh, that's a relatively small uh, uh, operation. Um, I don't know of, of anyone with more than 20 acres of chestnuts anywhere in, in the Northeast. Mm -hmm. um, now, if you get into more expansive, uh, say, alley cropping, where you're intercropping corn with, say, a pecan or black walnut or some other tree species, say, in, in the Midwest, you know, those might be much larger operations. But I think, I don't think there's any minimum. It really depends on what your operation is, from, from very small, as I mentioned, forest farming to, you know, a couple acre civil pasture or, or, or alley cropping here in, in, in our region. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and in your opinion, Gregory, is it better to buy a piece of property that already has trees on it, or start from scratch? We clear them. <laughs> well, that's that's a, that's a tough one, and, and um, I'm uh, I, I'm going to give you a maybe a, a biased answer, and that <laughs> in that we want more trees on the agricultural landscape. I'm going to say go out there and find an already existing piece of agricultural land and design how you're going to add trees to it mm -hmm. <laughs> rather than removing trees from a forested landscape mm -hmm. and it'll be a heck of a lot easier for you to to plant the trees and establish trees that you want where you want them than to try to remodel an existing forest uh, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily right about this or have all the information but uh, I, I uh, for those two reasons one we want to add more trees and two I think you'll have an easier time of it mm -hmm. <laughs> others that may may correct me on some, some of that, that. Okay, uh, and is there an initial large investment of time and money uh, when it comes to agroforestry? Sure thing. I mean, uh, you just mentioned the land acquisition. Unless you have access to land or can make some mm -hmm. arrangement, if you're not uh, owner or having a long, you know long-term lease, you have to find access, and so that's obviously a hurdle, especially in some of our communities around here where land is, is not uh, cheap. Um, Mm -hmm. Oh, so do you and, think do you think that initial investment uh, puts people off who might go into? Well, I think that's that's a barrier to any, many who are maybe considering a, a, a career in, in agriculture or, or become mm -hmm. beginning as a farmer is is access to land or acquiring land because mm -hmm. you know their pathway to land might not be acquiring but through some other form of access, either leasing or or uh, um, other types of arrangements who have access to, to farmland. Mm -hmm. um, then your other uh, establishing trees is, is 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 a cost, and one of the biggest barriers to uh, agroforestry adoption is the initial upfront cost and establishment, but also the length of time towards seeing a return on your investment with trees. Mm -hmm. This can, is measured in years, not not uh, not a single season. Now, some crops like the elderberry, you can start seeing production in two to three years. Chestnuts, you might get your first crop four years, but really it's around year seven where you start seeing real production and then maybe full production after, uh, say, about 10 years. Uh, so that's that's a real concern and, and a barrier for, for many. Uh, uh, how to carry sort of uh, carry the notes or, or, or the expenses until you you start seeing uh, uh, a crop and then revenue and then maybe uh, you know a profit at, at some point. Mm -hmm. um, so 
perhaps there's other ways of, of, of approaching it. Now, there are increasingly entities that are helping to look to support and, and finance agroforestry adoption. Uh, um, Air Corps uh, Land Trust, uh, working with the Savannah Institute out in the Midwest. Here, more locally, I think Berkshire Ag Ventures is established as an entity that's trying to uh, promote sustainable agriculture and financing mechanisms and including ag supporting agroforestry, if I'm not mistaken, Berkshire Ag Ventures. And there may be other uh, trusts and, and financing mechanisms to help people get on the land and, and get agroforestry started. Mm-hmm. So Gregory, um, would you say that agroforestry is mainstream now? And if not, what would it take? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, if you asked me five to 10 years ago, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. uh, increasingly, I think there's been a lot of, of change in the last decade uh, or more since I've been involved. Uh, you know, colleagues I worked with who've been at it since the 70s and 80s. You know, I remember getting started with organic agriculture and and that curve if you know when we started in the early 80s it was you know it was fringe but now it's become quite mainstream so mm -hmm. is agroforestry on on a pathway to becoming mainstream well we certainly hope so it's certainly more widely understood and recognized and, and there's more greater awareness of, and there's uh, increasing support for it um we sure hope to make it mainstream as as is the uh uh you know most common and 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 uh uh, practices that, that are commonly used to for for sustainability and, and, and environmental uh, stewardship on agricultural lands. Um, so, has it become mainstream? I, I don't think we get to call it mainstream, but it's it's certainly becoming more widely recognized and, and increasing supports. I mean, you see maybe some improved policies in some states. There's maybe a fund for it, or in a place like Missouri, there's now a, a special ag, ag sub fund under their NRCS equip programs. Uh, Pennsylvania has an agroforestry official agroforester on their forestry staff. Uh, some other states, I think, have had uh, some climate fund or climate you know programs that recognize agroforestry or support agroforestry as a practice. So. Mm -hmm. The needle has moved, but uh, let's let's all work together to make it mainstream. I guess would what I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, where would you say are the uh, the majority of agroforestry projects uh, take place in the world right now, hmm. and why? Well, uh, if we look at other countries around the world, there's there's uh, places where some kind of agroforestry practice is is much more common or or. Mm -hmm. Or, or even traditional, if we look at uh, certain types of intercropping uh, in some locations, you see, I think, quite a bit more uh, alley cropping, say, walnut, chestnut with wheat in, in parts of Europe. In Spain, there's extensive areas that are using a, a what we call the dehesa system, which is more traditional civil pasture on extensive tracts of land with cattle and, and native trees in a managed system. Um, the, there's uh, approaches to land management in the Sahara in terms of regenerating uh, native trees or, or adding trees for, for soil protection, erosion reduction uh, in, in ways that the agroforestry practices that have had a major transformation of some areas of the Sahel. Um, I, there's, there's, I think, more alley cropping uh, with, with wheat and, and trees in, in, in China. Uh, there's a lot of uh, in the tropics what we call home gardens or small scale uh, 
uh, in multi-species agroforestry systems, and certainly in the coffee and cocoa and some other tree crops in the tropics, these are all extensive agroforestry systems. Um, yeah, and so certain some countries are certainly, and especially in Europe, are have made a more progress in, in advancing agroforestry in a shorter period of time than than we might have seen here in the United States. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so, what have what have been the biggest challenges for you uh, when it comes to your agroforestry business? Oh well, uh, I suppose from what I'm trying to do at two levels. One, you know, having a piece of land and trying to. <clears throat> be an agroforester and grow stuff and, and have a little farm stand and go into farmer's markets. That's here locally in Sooth Free and stuff I hire just around the region. And Forestopia as the business, uh, trying to do the big picture uh, uh, of, of, uh, of dealing with uh, numerous products from all around the world and trying to uh, promote them here in, in, in open markets. Some of them are unknowns like Ramon seed from, from Yucatan Forest or uh, uh, you know, we, we bring mesquite flour from Mexico too. And, you know, people don't really know mesquite flour. They think mesquite smoked barbecue and things, but they don't mm. necessarily, um, have experience. Hey, sorry. Son just walked in there. How are you doing there? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. uh, with, or baobab from Southern Africa. It's, mm-hmm. these are new novel products. So, uh, trying to build a business model of promoting and selling products that people are unaware of is, is a, is a bit of a challenge. Mm-hmm. So that's, but that's part of why we're a, a, an L3C sort of social mission because we see the consumer education as, as the other half of, of, of side of the coin of our work with also trying to work with growers to promote agroforestry management and, and help find markets for their products. So mm-hmm. um, I guess maybe the challenge would be uh kind of getting through that middle space where we're we're still small but trying to grow and being able to generate enough revenue to hire more staff to actually do more things rather than me and a couple assistants trying to do everything which is mm-hmm. uh well you can only go so far now with yeah, that <laughs> you're listening to farm to fork on valley free radio wxojlp 103.3 fm in northampton and we're talking with Gregory Mori, owner of Forestopia International in Brattleboro, Vermont. Uh, so, Gregory, where? Well, so you mentioned um, Berkshire Ag Ventures as one funding source for agroforestry. Are there other sources of funding? Uh, yeah, yeah, there are. I, I should probably uh, uh, follow uh, conclude that last thought. Uh, mm-hmm. thing that our our we do sell uh, products through our online we have a website forestopia.org where you can mm-hmm. read a little bit about who we are and what we do and also see the products we work with and mm-hmm. um and there's about 40 odd different products both local and from around the world uh, from coffee and teas to tree-based flowers nut oils uh sumac uh, spruce tips etc mm-hmm. so have a look at forestopia.org and so a little bit of shameless uh, self-promotion mm-hmm. there, yeah, but moving on, uh, financing. Yeah. Uh, there are increasingly, as I mentioned, uh, a number of, uh, entities, whether it's Berkshire Ag Ventures or Iroquois Valley land or farm trust, it is, uh, some other things like regeneration international or regenerative mm-hmm. farms international. I have to go back and look at my notes. Uh, but some of these are looking at, at setting up mechanisms to, uh, uh channel funding so that, uh, Farmers, uh, land managers uh, have uh, 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 means to plant the trees and and, and financing uh, in the years of establishment. 
Um, NRCS uh, has a number of programs that will assist uh, farmers and landowners in planting trees or implementing practices like windbreaks and, and riparian forest buffers. And there's cost share and technical assistance available. Um, there uh, often may be other uh, means like through a specialty crop block grant or other uh, kinds of grant programs. Uh, at the state level, uh, there may be uh, environmental quality incentive programs or, or uh, climate change uh, mitigation programs that would support or incentivize uh, farmers and landowners to plant trees. Uh, mm -hmm. I think uh, we, what we might do is do a follow-up, maybe try to compile some links and, and references that uh, maybe there'd be a place where we could put this on a website that folks could follow up and see and see some of those links. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, so if, you know, one of our listeners was interested in agroforestry, what would you say would be the first steps if they wanted to incorporate it into on their property? Well, uh, I guess consider. Uh, Are there design plans? There, somewhere? There's some tools. There's some design tools and some planning guides. Yeah, look at the Center for Agroforestry.org. They have some mm -hmm. planning and, and, and design tools that will help you kind of go through the steps of first, you know, evaluating your land and also yourself, you know. What is, what is the right, uh, what is possible on your land? What are the right uh, kind of combinations or species to consider and what configurations? What are you as a person, family and, and farmer uh, comfortable with and not comfortable with? Uh, 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 you know, I, I grow shiitake mushrooms on logs and I teach workshops and, but I make it clear to people, this may not be for you. I mean, schlepping around a couple hundred logs a day uh, or, or a thousand logs a week moving around, that's, it gets old real fast, and so some some types of farming or or, or dealing with uh, you know uh, trying to you know integrate livestock in, in in with cropping system that just might not be for forever. So it, it's uh, it's really what's right for you, what's the right tree and the right uh, way on, on on your site. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. there are planning tools available, as I mentioned, Center for Agroforestry and National Agroforestry Center have uh, guides, technical guides and, and planning tools. Mm -hmm. And there's there's uh, folks who are, uh, have that expertise in sort of the ecological dimension and design, folks like us, I mentioned John O'Niger and Regenerative Design Group and there's others around that really have those technical sk skills in site assessment, mm -hmm. ecological ass assessment and, and, and design and planning of, of systems. Mm -hmm. So Gregory, um, you know, I have heard this uh, quite often, you know, I mean, you know, we had um, shade trees planted at our house. The city of Northampton is planting shade trees for any resident who wants one in the green belt. Mm. But uh, you often hear people say, I don't want to plant a tree in my yard because um, it'll create shade. So I won't be able to plant those sun loving plants, right? Sun loving edibles. Mm. Or I have to worry about that tree falling on my house or garage you know, in the future. So I was just curious, what might you say to those folks? Um, Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, those are legitimate concerns. I mean, I, as much as I, uh, you know, promote trees and tree-based agriculture, I keep a buffer around my house that, that mm -hmm. there's just no tree tall enough that could be a wind throw into the structure. <laughs> and that's, uh, you know, I, I, I'm at 1,200 feet in Shutesbury, you know, summer heat is not really my biggest problem. So uh, I've forgone the shade trees, but if I mm -hmm. were in uh, Texas, yeah, I might want a shade tree, uh, you know, close at hand. And mm -hmm. so that's a trade-off. Um, um, <clears throat> so, 
in terms of it's like a suburban yard where there's a trade-off there, you might consider something more like a food forest or an edible forest where you're having a, a selection of smaller shrubs, berries, mm -hmm. uh, hazelnuts, where you could build what's called a food forest of mm -hmm. edible or an edible forest garden. Yeah, so smaller scale. Of, uh, a much more managed, small scale, mm -hmm. uh, edible landscape there in your yard that could, would have uh, a selection of perennials and, and, and other uh, edible crops mm -hmm. integrated. Well, I Gregor guess we could call that another agroforestry practice, just sort of the small scale food forest or edible mm -hmm. forest garden. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And for extensive uh, advice and, 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 and on that, you refer to, of course, the edible forest gardens, Eric Tonsmeyer and David Jackie's book, which is just a tome of, of, mm -hmm. of, of extensive information on different plant species, their properties, advantages, disadvantages, and, and you know, how to design an edible forest garden on, 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 on sites. So, mm -hmm. And we have uh, an example locally, Holyoke's uh, Paradise Lot. Oh yeah, parasite. Well, that's uh, that. Of course, is uh, Eric Tonsmeyer yeah, and Jones. Uh, Jonathan. Um, Jonathan Bates mm -hmm. wrote the Paradise Lab, but that, that's the, that's Eric's site at his, in his backyard mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. in Holyoke. Yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, Gregor, we have uh, about a minute left. Are there any last uh, facts you want to throw out? Website address again. Oh, okay. Well, I appreciate events. you having me here. And and uh, yeah, so our website is forestopia.org. Mm -hmm. um, check it out. Um, Try some things that you've never tried before. Try the Yopon tea. We harvest that in Texas. It's a native holly. It's like Yeramate. It's just better. Mm -hmm. uh, it tastes great. Makes you feel good. It's got theobromine. Try the Yopon tea. Try mesquite flour in, 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 in milk. It's the best chocolate milk you could ever try. Try baobab mm -hmm. in a smoothie. What else can I say? Try our acorn chai. We make mm -hmm. a chai from roasted acorns with, mm -hmm. with spice bush and some other spices. It's great. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. We'll be out every Sunday from about June 1st through the end of the season at Big River Chestnuts in Sunderland. We'll have our Sunday perennial market from about 11 or noon to about 3 or 4 in the afternoon. That might vary, but every Sunday afternoon from June to uh, the holidays in December, we'll, we'll be out there. So come check out the perennial market at Big River Chestnuts, Forestopia and Big River Chestnuts mm -hmm. there in Sunderland every Sunday. Thanks awesome. so much. Thanks, Gregory. Uh, well, we'd like to thank our guest, Gregory Mori, owner of Forestopia International in Brattleboro, Vermont. You may find additional information about Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio's website, valleyfreeradio.org. Our theme song was written and performed by Scraggly Dan and the Stragglers. Thanks. <laughs>